0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 286, The Battle of Rabao, Prelude. Last time, the various invasions of Operation No. 1, the Japanese conquest of Southeast Asia, was going better than hoped for, thanks to meticulous planning, overwhelming numbers, surprise, luck, and, it has to be said, the ill-prepared defenses of the Allies or rather that Europe was the priority of those Western powers engaged against the Axis powers. As we have seen, Thailand acquiesced to Japanese pressure. Malaya fell, Burma and the Philippines were invested, which will be covered shortly, followed by the occupation of Singapore, Hong Kong, Sumatra, Java, Bali, Borneo, the Maluku Islands, the Celibis, not to mention the American possessions further east. Guam and Wake Island, Midway was bombed, and then Timor fell. To be sure, New Guinea was on the Japanese Empire's list. Stationed just above Australia, separated by the shallow Torre Strait, it had to come under Japanese control in order to, at the very least, project power southward to cut off Australia from Western help. The oldest known Homo sapiens on New Guinea or Papua, as parts of the islands were called before Westerners arrived, goes back 40,000 years as people migrated out of Africa. And as the Japanese and Allied troops were going to find out, because travel there was difficult under the best of circumstances due to thick jungles, monsoons, intense heat, and disease-infested swamps, the people on this second-largest island in the world For all those years, stayed close to home, hence hundreds, if not thousands, of separate languages developed over the years. But in the 16th century, Portuguese explorers came along, though did little with it, considering the island's harshness. In time, the western part of New Guinea became a part of the Dutch East Indies. It would be the Germans who claimed the northeastern section, but lost it after World War I. The British by then had laid claim to the southeastern portion, but did so with no enthusiasm. The Treaty of Versailles gave the German portion to Australia, who was already governing the British section. But considering the island's climate, and how many men the Japanese and allies threw at New Guinea during the war, it was aptly called by one American soldier, a green hell on earth. Though the Battle of New Guinea does not rank with the Battle of Britain, Stalingrad, Midway, or El Alamein, it was a duel that meant much to both sides, and the fighting there was almost constant from January 1942 until the end of the war. In fact, the Japanese imperial staff had taken New Guinea as a cornerstone of their war policy, and the more men they poured onto the island, the more important it became which would drain vital resources of men and materiel from other fronts like Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan, and Iwo Jima. But on the reverse side, the Allies had to have New Guinea. It was the first step to go north from Australia to the Philippines to get to the Japanese home islands. In the end, the Battle of New Guinea would break the Japanese, but so too many Allied soldiers. A green hell, indeed. During the first few weeks of war, as we have seen, the Japanese military captured vast amounts of territory in Southeast Asia, and the resources that went with them. But to hold on to them against the more numerous Americans was another thing. To keep the war going their way, the Japanese had to make sure that the Americans did not build up troop strength, along with ships and planes, on Australia. But how to achieve this? That was the $64,000 question of the Japanese military planners. The Navy believed that Japan had to gain control, at the very least, of Australia's northeast corner. Yet the army, who would actually have to do the fighting and occupying, was against this. They already had almost one million troops tasked with holding China, Southeast Asia, and Manchuria, And an eye had to be kept on the hated, untrustworthy Russians. Simply, the army did not want the responsibility of holding Northeast Australia, though it had a much smaller population. An occupation force would invite a war of attrition, something the Japanese army knew would be their death knell. Hence, the army's response was that the empire should form a naval blockade of Australia at least its northeast and eastern sections. Yet both sides agreed that holding New Guinea was a minimum necessity. With that, they could bomb parts of Australia and threaten naval bombardment. It would be a knife to the Aussies' throats, held in place permanently. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Unfortunately for Australia and the Americans who needed it, as the wider war came to Europe first, when the Japanese launched their attack at New Guinea, the land down under could not have been more unprepared to defend itself. Its four combat divisions were already engaged, alongside British and other troops, in Malaya and in North Africa. Further, nine squadrons of its Royal Air Force were also involved in those battles. As for protecting its own coasts, five cruisers were only just returning to its waters, coming from months of service in the Indian Ocean and Mediterranean Sea. To be sure, there was one armoured division still at home, but it had no tanks, and its soldiers were untrained and untested. No, the only fighting force, as it were, was the militia troops, and they needed months of training to have any chance of standing up to the experienced Japanese troops should they come this way. And the Japanese were coming, at least as far as New Guinea. On January 3rd, 1942, officers of the Japanese Army and Navy met to decide the details of how the invasion of New Guinea would progress. But now, at war with the Allies, they had to meet in a safe location. It was decided that that place would be Truck Harbor, located about 1,800 kilometers or 1,100 miles northeast of their target, New Guinea. The harbor itself really an atoll, had a protective reef that was 225 kilometers, or 140 miles, around, with a natural harbor 70 by 50 kilometers, or 49 by 31 miles. It had been awarded to the Japanese after World War I, but was now called the Gibraltar of the Pacific, thanks to its beefed-up defenses. To say that Truck Harbor is beautiful does not even begin to do it justice, but at the moment, as the various volcanic rings had batteries of anti-aircraft guns sitting atop them, with warships all around, it was now as deadly for any non-Japanese as it was impressive. It irritated Major General Tomitaro Hori, the commander of the Imperial Japanese Army's South Sea Detachment, that he had to fly out to truck to meet with Admiral Shigeyoshi Inoue, who was in charge of the 4th Fleet. But that's where the Admiral's fleet was based. A protege of Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, Inoue was against the signing of the Tripartite Pact with Germany and Italy, and wanted his country to focus on aircraft carriers, not battleships. He lost both arguments. General Hori had the supposed good fortune to be picked to command the New Guinea invasion. Still, he hated coming to the naval base. The Japanese army did not like the country's navy any more than any other nation's rival branches. But in the end, his South Seas detachment was a part of the Imperial Navy's South Sea Force. Hori was 51 years old, respected, and had seen action In China. Moreover, the thousands of Chinese civilian deaths during the Shanghai Incident of 1932 had left an impression on the general. He would go on to order, before battle came to New Guinea, of no looting, no violating women, and no needless killing or injuring of local inhabitants. But as time would show, his superiors would want no mercy shown to the enemy or anyone who let themselves be captured, there was no time for that. Though much of the planning had been done back in November of 1941, the Army and Navy staffs were meeting to work out the details. The Army's first two targets would be the two islands off New Guinea's east coast, specifically near the province of Morobe, named such since the time of the Germans. The closer and larger island, was New Britain, which held the vital town of Rabaul. Not only was Rabaul next to the deep anchorage of Simpson Harbour, but had already been designated as a base of operations once the Japanese possessed it. Moreover, Rabaul was shielded on three sides, by mountains, so access to it would have to go through Blanche Bay. Once the Japanese had it, its one entrance would be that much easier to defend. As for the Australian troops on it now, the invaders already knew that too few men were defending it. But more than just giving themselves a base of operations that much closer to Australia, Rabaul would allow the Japanese to dominate the Solomon Islands further to the southeast, which had its own advantages. As a bonus, Rabaul had two airfields, thus allowing the Japanese to begin bombing northern Australia as soon as it was in their possession, and owning it would make truck that much safer from the West against Allied planes. So, back to the multi-branch meeting. The Army and Navy officers shared reconnaissance photos, and through them, the final attack plan was hatched. Keeping it simple, as only 2,000 Allied troops, including volunteer militia, were believed to be defending Rabao, the Japanese would come ashore in three groups, but first, in a bit of overkill, but again, the invaders wanted the airfields in as pristine condition as possible, bombers would fly over and take out the defenders' airplanes. Then each of two groups would make for an airport separately, and the third group would go directly for Rabao. All total, this was to be 5,300 troops from the South Sea's detachments. To speed up this victory, the Japanese would sail directly into Simpson Bay, land on the beach, and head inland. Further, the unit heading directly for Rabaul was under orders to annihilate all defenders. General Hori, despite himself, was given this explicit order. Now it was time for the Navy to discuss their participation. Confident, but not weighing the enemy less than they should, The Navy assumed Rabaul's shore batteries would be able to inflict unacceptable damage on some of their ships. The man in charge of getting those transports to the beach, Rear Admiral Kiyohide Shima, had heard that the Aussies might have as many as ten coastal guns, if only. Strangely, this was not based on aerial photos, but spies on the ground at Rabaul. And since it was to be a frontal assault, the Navy decided the transports would come into Simpson Harbor at night. Yes, it was true that the Japanese practiced and so excelled at night fighting, but General Hori did not like the idea of landing on a beach he had never seen in the dark. But again, the decision was not his to make. The rabao the Japanese were coming at had 5,000 souls in its area, and up until May of 1937, the town had everything a European traveler or anyone else could want in amenities and accommodations. But in May of that year, a series of volcanic eruptions had covered the city with several inches of wet ash, which destroyed most of the buildings. In fact, Rabaul, the town, and its people were just starting to get on their feet again when the invaders came, which may explain why the Japanese had overly estimated the defenses of Rabao, because its location should still have made it worthy of a true defense. In January of forty-two, there were only 1,500 men and women in uniform in Rabao, not nearly what Hori had been told. And even then, some of that number were civilians, clerks, miners, bankers, and government employees, who had enlisted for training in the newly formed New Guinea Volunteer Rifles. But they never expected to be treated like frontline troops, which is what was about to happen. The main Australian unit defending New Britain was the 222nd Infantry Battalion, a.k.a. Lark Force, under the command of Colonel John Scanlon. A veteran of the Great War, he had under him infantry, artillery, a medical unit, female nurses, and a band. Yet not only were their numbers completely inadequate for what was coming, but so too were their weapons. They had two old three-inch anti-aircraft guns, and one of these was cracked. Still, the men dragged them up the 1,006-foot mountain after Pearl Harbor was hit and remembering that the only difference between a soldier and a civilian was training. Sadly, only six of the 53 men of the anti-aircraft battery had ever been near a gun when it went off. As for covering Rabaul's shores, that was left up to two Mark VII coastal guns made in 1901. As for the soldiers themselves, they were carrying Lee-Enfield rifles made before the Great War as well. To be sure, there was a smattering of Bren guns, light machine guns, mortars, and handguns, but as they were about to be outnumbered, five to one, none of any of these were enough. As we have already seen, Rabaul was about to be added to the list of territories that was going to be sacrificed, trading space and lives for time. The Australian Chiefs of Staff had decided that early on nor would ships be sent to evacuate Lark Force. The defenders of Rabaul would be expected to fight to the last. The Australian government made sure Washington knew of this, as Canberra was about to switch horses mid-race. Yet there was one exception to this ruling of a sort. The Australian government would send 14 RAAF planes to Rabaul, Four coastal reconnaissance light bombers and ten wearaway fighter trainers. Yet the emphasis for the latter, certainly compared to the Japanese Zeroes, was on the trainer part. This newly designated twenty four squadron would be led by twenty nine year old wing commander John LaRue. Still, if there was any doubt of the fate of Lark Force, it was told on January first, nineteen forty two, there shall be no withdrawal. As for the second initial island to be hit, New Ireland, just off the northeast shore of New Britain, in fact, Rabaul was only 25 miles or 40 kilometers from New Ireland's coast, the defensive situation there was even more dire. There, only 150 men of the first independent company protected the 3,300 square mile island. The man in charge, Major James Edmonds Wilson, was 35 years old and normally a farmer. The orders given to the Major were simple. Fight off the Japanese long enough to destroy anything of value in or around Caviang, the island's main port on its most northern tip, like fuel, ammunition, and of course, make the small airfield unusable. After which, the force was to use their schooner to make for Rabaul, to add their might to the fighting there. To add to the story of woe, the men of New Ireland were not only too few to defend their island, but had only been trained to fight in the Middle East. The jungle was new to them. Before the men at Rabaul sacrificed themselves, Wing Commander LaRue was given orders from the RAAF Regional Headquarters at Townsville, located on the northeast coast of Australia. 24 Squadron was to hit enemy bases or shipping whenever possible, so LaRue and his four bombers went after an enemy refueling station some 400 miles to the northeast of New Ireland, on the southern end of the Caroline Islands. Of course, to reach this point and fly back, they had to carry only half the bombs the planes were capable of, and at a fuel tank. Still, this was carried out on january first. A few flying boats and a fuel storage was hit, not enough to make a difference in the coming war, but enough to make the Japanese seek retribution when they came to Rabaul. After the Army-Navy meeting, General Horee flew back to his base on Guam. On January 4th, orders were issued for the attack and occupation of New Britain and New Ireland to proceed during the second half of January, as then there would be no moonlight. Next, the General ordered his staff to begin loading the necessary supplies and men onto the nine transports he had. To soften up Rabaul that same day, sixteen bombers were ordered to hit Lark Force. At 10:30 that morning, a coastal watcher on an island about 25 miles to the northeast of New Ireland informed military headquarters at Port Moresby on the southwest coast of New Guinea by radio that he had spotted Japanese bombers. Port Moresby informed Lark Force, the assumed target. When the bombers were close to Rabaul, the crew of the anti-aircraft gunners, many of them not even 19 years old yet, and their commander, Lieutenant David Selby, let loose with their guns. All around, the two 3-inch guns were happily surprised that even the cracked gun actually worked. Not that it mattered, as the bombers were flying at 18,000 feet, way out of the range of these small guns. Within minutes, the bombers were gone. Fortunately, only three of their 50 high-fragmentation bombs, called Daisy Cutters by the Australians, landed on the Lacunae airfield just outside Rabaul, along the coast. Commander LaRue gave chase with 2 Wirraways, but his were unable to catch up to the attackers. Between that bombing on January 4th, and when the Japanese infantry landed on the beach on january twenty third, the Lakunae and Vunakanau airfields, the latter was eleven miles south of Rabaul, were repeatedly bombed, and during that time two more wearaways and one additional Hudson bomber would be lost. As Lark Force realized it was on its own, Commander Colonel Scanlon decided to send out his own reconnaissance patrol to truck to hopefully get an idea of what they would be up against. So a Hudson bomber was sent out on January 9th. The six-man crew made the 1,400-mile round trip and brought back photos of what looked to be an overwhelming build-up of ships and airplanes. Well, at least they knew now what to expect. Yet that was only the naval and air component of the coming attack. On January 14th, General Hori left Guam with his transports, carrying three infantry battalions, a regiment of engineers, three battalions of sailors, a cavalry company with 500 horses, and lastly, a battalion of anti-aircraft guns, should any of the Allied planes survive the series of bombings. Not that Lark force had any chance against this force, but escorting the transports were three light cruisers, nine destroyers, and two mine layers, with many planes overhead. In addition, Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo, who would be overseeing the naval operations, was bringing from truck four aircraft carriers, two battleships, two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, and nine destroyers. Hell, the crews from the two fleets could have taken Rabaul by themselves. This was not caution on Nagumo's part. Normally a cautious man, it was overkill. During the last days of Rabao's freedom, Deputy Administrator Harold Page, the island's ranking diplomat, kept sending cables to Canberra. He either received no replies or was told to stand firm, but no help. Would be coming. In the early afternoon of January 20th, Horiz and Nogamu's fleets came together. Overhead were 100 aircraft, fighters, and bombers. The leader of this air force was Commander Mitsuo Fuchida, the man who had led the attack on Pearl Harbor. These aircraft would break into three groups and finish off anything that could still offer resistance at Rabao. They would come in from three directions, north, east, and west. Just after noon, that same coastal watcher as before on Tabar Island, about twenty five miles northeast of New Ireland, radioed in, having spotted twenty bombers. Word of this was sent to Lark Force on Rabaul. The soldiers ran for their battle stations. The last seven wereaways took off and flew east to intercept. Unfortunately, after the planes were out of sight, a group of 33 enemy planes came in from the west. Then 50 Zeros came in from the north. The anti-air gunners tried to shoot at the fighters, but their practice of training their guns on little model planes tied to a bamboo pole that a colleague ran around with was not adequate to hit an object moving at 300 miles an hour and shooting back. The sky was now filled with enemy aircraft. The defending weirways and Hudson's quickly began to disappear from the sky. Only two weirways and one Hudson bomber managed to land, for to stay up was to die unnecessarily. For the next 30 minutes, the Japanese took their time to go after the two airfields, all the buildings, and the three aircraft on the ground. As well, the docks were hit along with the ships next to them. Yet those excited teenage Aussies, now veterans, had not been shooting for nothing. Ensign Haruro Yoshino, who had flown a torpedo bomber at Pearl Harbor, reported here that seven of our planes failed to return. Yet the moment the air raid had started, Fuchida could see that this effort was not needed. There was no way Rabaul was going to be able to defend itself against what was coming. The air attacks, to his thinking, had been a waste of time, gas, and bombs, none of which Japan had to spare. After the Japanese planes left, Wing Commander LaRue sent a message to Townsville describing the attack, specifically the number of enemy bombers. His message ended with, Will you now please send some fighters? The reply was equally blunt. If we had them, you would get them. LaRue's response to this was his telling Townsville that he would be using his last three planes, two wearways and one Hudson bomber, to evacuate as many troops as he could. Why should they die here for nothing? The response which came the next day, January 21st, was an order to use that one bomber to attack the enemy fleet, about 65 miles away, making for Rabaul. Bitterly, LaRue did as ordered. The Hudson was barely airworthy, and one of the wearaways was not, so the bomber was loaded up, while the now lone wearaway, having no bomb rack, would provide cover. In reality, a decoy. Fortunately for these two crews, darkness came and made their locating the enemy fleet impossible. With the Japanese getting closer by the second, Larue and Colonel Scanlan, commander of Lark force, talked things over. Larue offered up his men to fight beside the army troops, even though they were untrained and had no weapons. To his credit, Scanlan said not to bother. He himself only had about 1,000 inexperienced men to fight, and besides, the airmen's bravery would have made no difference. Not that the gallantry on the first part, nor the honesty of the second part mattered, as HQ overruled both of them. The airmen were to help the army keep the airfield open, which made no sense, as they had received orders to sabotage anything that could be useful To the enemy. So, in response, LaRue sent a message to Townsville that read, Morituri vos salutamus. It took a while for the RAAF clerks to realize this was Latin and have it translated for their superiors. The military headquarters staff was given the following Those who are about to die salute you. This was a quote from Roman prisoners who were forced to fight and die in a mock naval battle for Emperor
1: Claudius in 52 CE.